Welcome to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best lives and advice on how you can achieve that too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. It's going to have to be a different man. Welcome, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining us here at Changing the Rules. Uh, we're lucky enough this morning, we're sitting in our brand new podcast facilities in Willow Street, Pennsylvania. We have our super engineer, Luke Cagno, sitting here at the board, and he's the person who makes us sound good or not, so I have to kind of behave when he's around because he can do damage to me. Uh, and we have a great guest today, but before we get into our guest, let me remind everybody that the luckiest people in the world, and that's what this podcast is all about, are people who take control of their own lives, redesign them to meet their own specs, and live them under their own terms. And the name of our show, Changing the Rules, is all about the fact that the luckiest people in the world manage to handle rules really well. You know, all through our lives, we're throwing new rules. We're given them by our parents when we're born. The church comes in, gives us rules. The schools give us rules. Our, our jobs give us rules. And the next thing we know, we have rules all over the place. And rules do two things. They tell us what we can't do and what we must do. And Steve Jobs, the Apple guy, the big Apple guy, uh, came up with a statement a while ago. And he said, you know, if you're living your life under somebody else's rules, you're not living your life. So we have a young lady today who is certainly uh, changing the rules, okay? She certainly has a fascinating life. And, and the, the real interesting kind of summary that I'm going to start with is that uh, she's going to tell you that her life, all of her life, was preparing her for a unique opportunity that she didn't know was going to come. But when it came, she had all the pieces together based on her life, that she was able to take advantage of an opportunity. So uh, Liz Williams, uh, welcome to Changing the Rules. Say hi to everybody. Hi, thanks for having me, Ray. Okay, so so let's start a little bit with your background. And uh, you grew up kind of where? How many, how many uh, family members did you have? Tell us a little bit about your background. I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs, which was a wonderful place to grow up. I had three sisters. Two parents. My father worked nights. My mother worked a lot. And back in those days, the 50s and 60s, mothers didn't work that much, but she did work as a secretary. So I had two working parents. Um, adored all my sisters. My, I lost my older sister, April, in 2008, which was a devastating blow. But I still have two younger sisters. And it was a great place to grow up. Okay, so you had a relatively happy life growing up, mm -hmm. and, and you went away to college, right? And where did you go to school? I went to Shippensburg State, which is a state college here in Pennsylvania. Loved Shippensburg. And what did you major in? I majored did? in urban studies. My father had died. Um, the, the September I left for college, my father died. So I had to pick a major that I thought would be very, very practical. I picked urban studies, which was kind of an up-and-coming thing, uh, city planning, that kind of thing. So that's what I picked, and I enjoyed it. It was part geography, part political science, and uh, I, I loved it. I loved all my college years. Okay, and then you went into the workforce, and, and basically give us kind of a short version of what kinds of things did you do? What, 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 what skills did you use in your jobs? 
The first job where I worked for my county planning commission, which was Delaware County, and again, in suburban, suburban Philadelphia, I did a lot of actually going to meetings, local meetings and so forth. And I realized when I was doing that, I loved to write. That was the only thing about that job that I really liked. I found after about two and a half years, I was like, nah, nah, I don't think this is for me. But I did love the writing, and I never forgot that. One thing that I did do there that I enjoyed was we, myself and the librarian there at the planning commission, they actually had their li- a library in there because they had so much materials to store. We came up with a county library plan for the county, and um, it was uh, um, one of the early library um, systems. Up until then, local towns just had their own little libraries. But this was a countywide system where you get a library card at one library, and it's good for all of the libraries there. So we did the foundation for that. So that was something I was proud of there. But I would say after about three years, I followed in my older sister's footsteps, and I became a flight attendant. Okay, now we're getting into excitement, right? Right, yeah. Okay, so, uh-huh. so the early years basically gave you the tools that you needed to write. Yes. And kind of extenuate, you know, taught you what to do. Right. Uh, but also didn't give you any excitement in your life. Not much. All right. No. So now, now we're a flight attendant. We're yeah. a woman of the world. So uh, who did you fly for? Where did you go? What did you do? I flew for Piedmont Airlines, which was based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was um, a regional airline for the South. It grew to uh, eventually fly overseas, but I only flew for seven years. I'd had enough after seven years, but it was fun. I met great friends. I did get to see some of Europe, some of South America, some of the Caribbean in my 20s, which was kind of unusual back then. Not that many people got to travel that much at that age. So that it did make me a woman of the world, actually. And we flew for very little because we had discounts. Sometimes you'd fly for free. Sometimes you got moved to first class for nothing. So it was great. And um, but as I say, after about seven years, that kind of got tiresome, too. Okay, so so who did you meet on your flights that were interesting stories? Oh, I had John McEnroe once who was truly rude. (laughs) Uh, He wouldn't put his tennis racket in the overhead bin like he was supposed to. And he insisted on it going in the, you know, that hang up closet for the garment bags. And, you know, I wasn't going to argue with him. I just wasn't going to get into it with him because maybe he'd report me to the management or something, you know. So I didn't do that. And I had Linda Bird Johnson, who was pregnant at the time with her, I think it was her third child. And I never had children, so I never understood why you'd want to have three children. So I actually said to her, are you pregnant again? And it was rather rude, but, you know, it just kind of came out. And I also had General Westmoreland on there, who um, was very quiet. He had not done so well in the Vietnam War, and I don't think he was, you know, a very popular person. So he kind of sat to himself, but we all knew who he was. Okay. But mainly, you know, we had the bulk of our customers were Southerners. And when I went to flight attendant training, 
I was from Pennsylvania, so I was the only one from the North, and I was the token Yankee. I had never been referred to as a Yankee before, and it was a little daunting, but, you know, everyone was lovely. They weren't mean to me or anything. It was just an, an odd situation to, you know, realize that, oh, my, they're, they're different, and I'm, I'm different to them, and, you know, they still kind of think like that, but... As I say, they were lovely. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so anyway, you're, the first part of your life, you you know, a fairly happy childhood, mm-hmm. you know, uh, moving along, got good education, you, a sequence of jobs that taught you writing, and then you became more of a woman of the world out there, and then mm-hmm. something happened. So, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, let me read this for you. This is, uh, you're an author, you've written a book, uh, and this is where we're going here. And uh, the intro to your book over here says, a young man from a gritty Pennsylvania mill town enlists in the Army Air Corps and heads to Hawaii, the paradise of the Pacific. Uh, There he and his buddies defend Oahu while it explodes and burns uh, in the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, The war surges. His uh, bomber squadron ships out to primitive Pacific outposts. Uh, amid air raids, stifling heat, outbreaks of tropical disease, he clings to sanity through letters that he and his wife share. Letters found years later saved in the attic. Yes. A poignant event, wasn't it? Yes. All and, right. And and here's where your life came together mm-hmm. in something that is significant, and I, I know it's truly meaning to you. So so tell us a story and mm-hmm. uh, uh Fill in the details. Well, you set me up terrifically here, Ray. After seven years of being a flight attendant, I actually, well, it was probably after six years, I started working at a part-time job. Because as a flight attendant, you have a lot of time off. You probably only work three or four days a week. The other days, you're, you're off. So I started working part-time at a printing company locally there. in Ar- I was based in Arlington, Virginia. And I started, I was always, I always excelled in English, and I knew that I had loved to, to write. So I thought, well, I'll do this part-time. It'll be fun. So basically, I was just finding mistakes. But that job led me to look more seriously at my career and find something in writing and editing rather than being a flight attendant. So, so I did. So I ended up working for... Um, well, in Washington, they were known as Beltway Bandits. They were trade associations or um, organizations that would um, have contracts with the federal government, and they would write proposals. And so there was some proposal writing I did uh, for a couple organizations. Then I went to work for a trade association. Then I end up, ended up working for the federal government. I worked for the General Accounting Office, which is now called the Government Accountability Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. And in those jobs, I, I basically wrote and edited reports that were read by the public they were ordered by a congressperson to investigate or study a program that was already in existence. For example, uh, um, health care for the military or a welfare program, something like that. They wanted to see were taxpayers' dollars being used to the best advantage. So 
A lot of the people employed by both GAO and CBO, Congressional Budget Office, were auditors or economists or technical experts in some way. So they would collect the data to study these programs. And then um, the writers and editors, such as myself, would come along and, you know, make it a finished product make sure it was organized well, make sure the message was right up front, make sure there weren't spellings or grammatical errors, because those kinds of errors would undermine the, the report. You know, they really had to be perfect. And I became a, a tremendous expert in grammar. I know everything about grammar. And I enjoyed that. It was, in a way, an organizational task, deciding what goes where, and how it should be presented. And I loved it. I loved my work in Washington. I really enjoyed it a lot. Okay. So how did this get to the letters that we found? Okay. I did diverge a little. Well, that's okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, in the early 2000s, my mother downsized and I helped her clean out her house and she found a big box of letters from my father in World War II. And she said, do you want these? And I said, yeah, I do. Because by then, I had become a pretty good writer. And I looked at them, and I said, you know, that's going to be a book. I want to write a book, and that's what it's going to be. And when I started looking, when I first thought of the project, I thought, well, it'll just be a straight nonfiction book. It'll just be, you know, letters. But when I started reading them, they were very substantive. My father was an excellent writer, and my mother was a good writer, too. Now, he had saved her letters that she wrote him, and sent them back to her for safekeeping. So I had a very rich collection. I had both sides of the correspondence. And I started reading, and I thought, you know, I think this is really a story. It's not just going to be a collection of letters. So the book turned out to be a war story, a love story, and my story of getting to know my father. Because I, as I mentioned earlier, he died when I was 18. I really didn't get to know him like you would get to know your parent as a young person. And in the course of my research, I discovered that my father was most likely a gay or bisexual man. So I don't share this with most of my readers because it's rather the climax of my book, and it's, it's, I refer to it as a secret in most of the times I talk to, talk about my book when I give a talk about my book. But for your audience, Ray, I'm going to go ahead and just say what it is. Because there are no World War II stories out there that I know of that have a gay theme. And I have one. And I don't know for a fact the trail was too cold to really track down men who had known my dad as a young man to really confirm this. But the fact is, I asked my mother about it. I asked my older sister about it, who, as I mentioned, has passed away. And she's the one that really tipped me off about it. She said, you know, I, in- I interviewed her for the book because she knew, knew him better than my other sisters or, or myself, because as I say, he died young. She said, you know, I think looking back, I think daddy was gay. And as soon as she said that, I was having an epiphany. I literally looked outside through her window at the leaves on the trees, and they became well-defined. That was the nature of the epiphany. 
because so many things made sense when she said that. How he was so fixated on the fact that I shouldn't be allowed to wear bangs. So fixated on our hair, our, what we wore. You know, he had four daughters. There's one other book that I know of on the market. It's called Fun Home about a young, that a young lady wrote. who uh, She had a father who was gay. Now, she didn't know it as a child that her father was gay, but she became aware of it because actually he, he kind of preyed on young boys, which my father didn't do anything like that. So it, her, she came from a lot of dysfunction, but her book became a Broadway play and won a bunch of Tony Awards. But it doesn't have anything to do with World War II. This does. There were, according to my research, at least 40,000 men in the military in World War II who were gay. There were probably more. They did conduct tests and screening to eliminate those kind of men so they wouldn't get in the service. But obviously, they didn't succeed in in eliminating all of them. And a lot of them served, like my father, with a lot of dignity and honor and sacrificed a lot for our country. I think that should be recognized. So so here you are, uh, all of your background uh, kind of culminated in this opportunity mm-hmm. and, and when it occurred, you knew what to do. And uh, your, your, uh, the book that you wrote is No Ordinary Soldier, My Father's Two Wars. Right. That's right. Uh, you won an award. I did for your book in 2018. I submitted it to, to I think three contests, and one of them I, I placed as a finalist. There were there was one all-time winner, let's say top winner, and then there were two finalists in the genre, which was military history that that I entered, and the award was the 2018 International Book Awards contest, which is a contest that uh, Publishers Weekly does recommend that authors enter. So it is a reputable contest, and I was just thrilled by the award. So so let's kind of think about this. Well, first of all, you have a book out there, and uh, uh, everybody should buy this book, right? Just yes, because of because course. you wrote it, and it's available <laughs> on Amazon. Okay, it has five stars. And and what we'll do is we'll put a listing on our podcast notes when we're done, so that people can find this. Mm-hmm. But but I think the the thing that's really interesting about you is how your background enabled you to be prepared to do something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, from knowing you, I think you consider yourself one of the luckiest people in the world because you've taken this career that was diverse pieces and you've kind of, uh, you're a writer. I am a writer. And that's what you are going to be Mm -hmm. from now on, right? That's right. So, So cool. So do you have any closing comments before we sum up? I just want to thank you very much for having me, Ray. It's been a pleasure. Well, we've been talking with Liz Williams. Uh, Liz is uh, a person who has uh, written a book, an award-winning book, and uh, it's available on Amazon through Kindle anytime you want to read it. And it's a it's a war story, and it's not it's not fiction. It's true, but it's how did you, how it's, do you it's a creative nonfiction creative book. It's non-fiction actually a hybrid. Book. It's a combination history, memoir and what they call creative nonfiction. In other words, it's a true story, but I use creative techniques such as metaphor, simile. It's a good read. It's not boring. 
And you're going to make it into a TV series at some point, right? Ken or Burns, something. if you're listening, I'm available. Okay, so thanks, Liz, for being with us. You're certainly one of the luckiest people in the world, and 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 you found your way to doing what you really want to do. And uh, thanks for being here. And Luke, sign us off, please. Thank you for listening to Changing the Rules. Join us next week for more conversation, our special guest, and to hear more from the luckiest guy in the world. It's going to have to be a different man.